I, I'm, I'm elated to be here, and uh, and uh, and I, I trust that you're wonderful, sensitive souls. Oh, thank, thank you. you, thank you very thank much. You. So, okay. welcome to another episode of Game of Life with Dan Harmon. We have an incredible character actor with us today. You may know him from Star Trek, The Man from Earth, Suits, Twenty Four, Stargate, X Files, X Files. John Billingsley, welcome to the show. Welcome, John. Thank you, but but you, but we're going to talk about some of my my less meritorious work today, which I'm looking <laughs> well, I well, always well, like to focus on the on the stinkers. <laughs> Let's focus on the stinkers, <laughs> which there are many. I have a checkered oeuvre. What well, what is the most obscure thing that people have recognized you for? Uh, well, the most obscure thing they wouldn't recognize me for because mercifully they haven't probably seen it. <laughs> but uh, I always point people towards some of the uh, real putrid things I've done out of out of shits and giggles. Also, because I think it's sort of like a treasure hunt, you know, you can find this really rotten Easter egg if you look for it. Um, probably the one that comes to mind is a movie called The Shredder Orpheus, which I was in when I was uh, in my my early 20s, which is about a um, a skateboarder who descends to hell, uh, Orpheus who descends to hell to rescue his uh, pop singer girlfriend, uh, Eurydice. It's all told against a sort of a vaguely punk rock background. Uh, it was made for about $18. It uh, is uh, fairly dreadful. So I, I highly recommend you find that. <laughs> Seven Hours to Judgment is a particular particular stinker. Um, Bo Bridges' directorial debut, no rap on Bo Bridges, fabulous actor but a really bad script, and I was really bad in it. Those two come to mind. Oh, I could go on and on in this vein. John, you said you were 20 back then. How were you feeling doing those roles? What was going uh, I was in my, my mid-20s, my early to mid-20s. And, um, you know, I had started out as a theater actor. That had always been my intention to pursue a career in the theater. I didn't really give any thought at all to film and television. So the occasional film and television project that came up, it was sort of a, a, a lanyap. I don't know if you know what a lanyap is, the 13th donut in the box. I thought, oh, great. I get to do a little weirdo movie. I didn't, you know, pay any attention to it particularly. Um, sometimes they paid, and that was nice because you don't make a lot of money in the theater. But it certainly wasn't, you know, in any way a sense of like, oh, I'm I'm starting my film and television career. Until I left Seattle and moved to Los Angeles, that really had been the farthest thing from my mind that I could ever have such a thing or that I would even ever want such a thing. But you get older and you get older and you think, wow, you can't make a living in the theater. Yeah. Um, you're always you're always looking for change under the sofa cushion. You're always worried about whether you're going to make your rent check. You're forced into being perpetually peripatetic because you have to take any theater gig that comes up, even if it's in bumfuck. Um, I reached a point in my life where I thought, I don't think I can sustain this. I thought mm -hmm. I, I started a theater company. I was hoping that I might be able to make a go of that and I could eventually pay myself to be in essence an artistic director and although that theater company has survived and flourished and other people are the artistic directors I realized after five or six years I didn't want to be an artistic director mm -hmm. so I had no choice I moved to Los Angeles out of a sense of, of desperation so what was that moment when you felt a sense of achievement that yes you are an actor well, I always knew I was an actor. I mean, I, I, David Mamet famously said, and I don't really have much of a brief for David Mamet these days because he's turned into no small bit of a religious zealot and a fascist. But you know, nonetheless, 
David Mamet did write some fabulous plays and he wrote some very interesting books about um, having a theater career. And one of the things he said was, if you have a fallback position, you will fall back on it. So I never had a fallback position. I was an actor, period, much to my parents' chagrin. That was all I ever wanted to do. It was all I ever set out to do and it's all I ever did. I, I, I like I like what you said there that don't have a plan B because how how we're conditioned as human beings is to have a plan B and people who think practically always want to have plan B, C or D. Um, so when you said you were in mid twenties, we are we are in that um, you know age bracket and mm -hmm. maybe end of this uh, this uh, podcast we might actually ask for some words of wisdom from you, um, where we headed or what we should do or what anyone should do who were actually in your shoes back then. Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing because, I mean, it's so much of it. It's just a conflict of values and how you sort of rank those values, what's most important to you. When I was young, the most important thing for me was to express myself through my work and to pursue my work. And that mattered a lot more mm -hmm. than anything else, including security. You get older, and one of the nice things about, I suppose, having spent 15 or so years pursuing theater was I had no doubt I was an actor. I just reached a point in my life where I needed to figure out how to make a living from it after having done it for a long time. There's a very long, unfortunately, frequently, a very long apprenticeship one has to put in in the arts. I think the challenge of being any kind of an artist, a visual artist, a you know, creative artist of any kind, is that you, you have to accept the fact that it's going to take a long time in which you may not see a lot of money. And during those years, you hopefully get better at it. And you find out as you get older whether or not you are you are inclined to continue doing what it was you didn't question when you were younger, out of passion. Now, some of the realities of life become a little more pressing, mm. and you have to ask yourself, am I, am I good at it after all these years? Yeah. Good enough to keep on going, and now that I have to start thinking about things like I'm aging and I may not be able to do this forever and I have to have some sense of a pot to piss in, should I continue? Mm. Uh, Arguably, then, that sort of says, you know, that fallback position for me, I, I don't know. I suppose I just deferred the fallback position. It's like, don't think about it for 20 years. Mm. I'll cross that bridge if and when. By the time I got old enough, by the time I hit 40, I was fortunate enough to feel like I don't have to worry about it. Mm. I'm an actor. I'll be okay. Let's yeah. talk about, sorry. No, Let's talk no. about belief. Um You had that belief in you when you were young that I'm going to do this regardless of anything that comes my way i mean i'm I'm sure you might have some responsibilities you might have people around you 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 know well well as a for instance i you know wanted to have a vasectomy at a very early age because i knew that you know when you start talking about this or that mm -hmm. i guess I, I what i am is a pragmatist and a realist it's like mm -hmm. look i didn't have any illusions that it was going to be easy i didn't have any illusions that it wasn't going to require a lot of sacrifice there are things that other people value that I didn't value particularly. I didn't care that much about whether I had a fancy car or dressed well or mm -hmm. ate in nice restaurants or, you know, could 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 show a girl a fancy pants good time. I didn't care about any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I knew I didn't want children. So it wasn't so much a question of, oh, boy, if I pursue this, I'm going to lose. Mm -hmm. That for me wasn't really an issue. I think a lot of the the challenge for anybody in life, always, no matter what they're doing, is to say, on the one hand this, on the other hand that, and I won't pretend that that I, I I'm not going to pretend that it's not going to be it's not going to be hard. Mm -hmm. Every decision, is hard. you leave something behind, no matter what you do, you just have to be ruthlessly honest about what the you know what you want more.
Do, do you find that you um, have taken less risk now than you did back then? Yeah, because, you know, I mean, your values shift and change as you get older. And, you know, when you're younger, you're more inclined to, you, for one thing, you need to take risk when you're younger. I mean, you know, you, you don't know whether or not, for me, I didn't know whether or not I could have a career as an actor until I put myself out in the world. No one's going to hand you a job, so you have to create work for yourself, mm -hmm. which is a risk-taking enterprise. You get older, now that I'm 63, I've been a working actor for many, many years. I don't need to necessarily take the same kind of risks I did earlier, the risk of inventing a business for myself, because I have an existing business model. Mm. The risks that I might be prepared to take now might be more artistic in nature if I was bent that way. But the other thing that shifted and changed is after having been an actor for 50 years, I don't necessarily have the same hunger, passion, or drive to act that mm. I did when I was young. Um, we will, we'll talk about it later. I put a lot of my energy into the Hollywood Food Coalition in the last yes. seven years. Yeah. Do, do you miss that passion for, for, for acting? Or is it just a matter of, well, other things have now fulfilled that passion for you? Yeah, it goes. it just goes in different directions, you know? I mean, it's a hard thing. I think the nature of life is such that you have to look in the mirror kind of every night and you kind of ask yourself honestly. What do I want more? What do I want most? Do I want family? Do I want security? Am I passionate about my job? Does my my interest in my job, is it waning? Do I need to think about something else? It, those questions never go away. You know, the nature of the decisions shift and change as you mm. get older. Yeah. Um, for me, you know, getting out of a theater and getting into film and television was a big, a big, a big life change. Um, beginning to move away from feeling like I'm an actor more more than anything. I'm an actor into I like to act, but it isn't as important as it used to be. Big life change. Mm. Uh, I just I've not tended to in my life be afraid of looking at those questions pretty, you know, pretty honestly and pretty rigorously. Mm. What 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 is that life as a character actor? Because I mean, you're starting you're just starting fresh every every time you walk onto a new set. Well, that's true. No, I mean, you know, there's an that that phrase is sort of I, I'm not even entirely sure I necessarily believe there is such a thing as a character actor. I mean, if you're an actor, any any job you get, you approach it the same way. I suppose there is a reality that like Harrison Ford is a movie star. Um, John Wayne was a movie star. Generally speaking, they cast him to be a version of John Wayne. Right. So when people talk about character actors, I suppose what they're suggesting is that they aren't casting you because you have a personality that is recognizable to the general public. They cast you because you have the ability to inhabit a lot of different you know, kinds of temperaments. Mm. Um, the work is the work is the work, though. You get a script and your obligation is to figure out what makes this person tick, what do they want. What do they want in relationship to what the script is about? Stanislavski basically talks about the through line, what it is that the author is trying to say and what your role as a character is to help convey that message, that theme. And then how do you put that on its feet in a way that keeps you emotionally alive, you mm -hmm. know, and invested so that the action you're pursuing really means something to you. Mm -hmm. And then the craft, which is true no matter whether you're a character actor or a leading man, what makes an actor compelling is the extent to which they are playing honestly in the moment and you really believe 
that they're invested in the other people they're acting with, mm. which Sanford Meisner's, you know, I think work that I, I taught for many years, um, moment to moment truthfulness based on honest interaction with your acting partner. Mm. Yeah. Who who is the who was favorite actor that you worked with? Favorite actor that I worked with? Um it's hard to say. It's kind of apples and oranges, you know. I mean, it's it's like picking a favorite book or a favorite food, you know. Um, it's, it's, I'm asking it's, this because I wanted to know, like, who was your favorite actor and what was it about them that spoke so highly to you? Because I can see you're you're you know, like you you can explore people and you can you talk about craft and you talk about acting. I just wanted to know, like, what was it about that actor that spoke so highly to you? It, it's sort of it's inseparable from the project, though, you know, it's like, for instance, I mean, long ago and far away when I was a theater actor, I did a production of The Seagull um, that a wonderful young, a wonderful woman named Robin Smith directed. And in the context of that production, I got to work with a, an actress that you never would have heard of. She's not mm. Amy Perry. She doesn't work anymore. But I was Treplev. She was Nina. We had a wonderful director. It's Chekhov. It's incredibly rich material. That was a wonderful, wonderful working relationship and maybe the most one of the most fulfilling experiences I've ever had. Mm -hmm. I also worked with Denzel Washington in a movie, yeah, which was a lot of fun, but it wasn't Chekhov. It was an action adventure buddy comedy. It was, you know, I mean, he's a he's a god amongst actors. So I always have to sort of acknowledge that in terms of from outside, who's the best actor you've ever worked with? It would probably be Denzel. But the nature of the work was not, you know, wonderful, expressive, amazing, improvisational, extremely present actor, and I loved doing it. But it ain't Chekhov. Mm -hmm. You know? Well, what are the attributes in the colleagues that you have worked with that you aspire to have yourself or have, like, sort of rubbed off on you as you've, as you've got older and as you've moved on? Um, I'd separate it out. There are two different ways of looking at it. There's, there's from the sheer, from the, from the vantage point of, of being a professional and, and really believing that you have an obligation as a professional to bring your best self to the stage and to the soundstage. Mm. I look at somebody like Scott Bakula or Mark Harmon, who mm. are quarterbacks on mm -hmm. a television show. If you're number one on a television show, you have so much responsibility when it comes to setting the tone for how mm -hmm. the day goes, day in, day out, day in, day out. Both of those gentlemen, particularly Scott for me, because I worked so closely with him, they knew everybody's name. They knew everybody's birthday. They knew the name. He knew the names of the spouses and the children. He went out of his way to make everybody who was a guest on the set, be mm -hmm. it a stand-in, an extra, uh, a guest star, feel at home and welcome. He set a tone. Mm. That's important to me. I'm not usually number one on a call sheet, but it matters to me to have have very strong professional ethics, mm. which means when you're called to set, you show up. You don't linger or loiter in your trailer. You know your lines. If you have a question, you've already thought through the possible answer to that question so you don't hold up camera by, mm. you know, I don't know if my uh, character would do this. Um Actors should have a deep sense of responsibility to what the project requires. And the project requires you shoot eight pages that day in 10 hours. You got to go. So you got to be ready and prepared. The, the work itself, for me as an actor, the thing that I'm most responsive to and the thing that I'm most excited about as an actor 
is when no matter how you know what you're trying to achieve, but there's a sense of 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 the improvisational in every take. In mm. every take, you're working with somebody who you believe has the capacity to surprise you, and you know that they are working off of what you're giving them. That's 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 the nirvana. That's what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that can be hard in like a procedural, mm. you know, yeah. the CSI Dubuque or mm. whichever version of whichever crime show, whatever iteration it is. You know, it's more or less the same script every single time. Yeah, yeah. Somebody's in peril. Somebody has to be rescued. It's a red herring. No, they did it. You know, you arrest them. Da -da 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 -da, standoff. Da -da 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 -da. It's the same set of beats. Yeah. For the people who are the series regulars who are showing up to do that every day, it sometimes is hard for them to actually be, um, you know, like, oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. About that. And you have to make allowances for that. Sometimes what you're looking for as an actor isn't going to be available to you very much in certain programs. Well, it can be a grind as well because they still do 20-odd episodes a year still. Those cops. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and you know, ironically, I mean, the golden age of television, it's, it's a perverse business. The golden age of television, which we all as viewers get to enjoy, where it's these limited series on Netflix and Hulu and yada yada, and you have a sense, oh, it's almost like a novel. I don't know what's going to happen next. And, you know, it's it's actually, it's hmm. not the blah, 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 CSI debut. It's 19th year, and you know what's, you know, the team, the team, the team. But because they make fewer of those those in, those great shows the fewer episodes and because it's streaming and they don't go into necessarily into the into the residuals into syndication market actors and writers are making a lot less money mm. which is around strike so mm. weirdly as much as as an as an actor i may not have that much interest in doing ncis dubuque mm. i'm going to make a lot more money doing ncis dubuque when all is said and done when you count up the syndication residuals yada 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 on the primetime reruns that I'm ever going to make doing a prestige show on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem a little bit with our industry. Mm. You know, the, um, the writer's strike, I saw a picture of you with um, Scott Bakula on the picket huh. line um, last month. Yep. It's something still that's dragging on. Um, can, you tell, on. can you tell us a little bit about the writer's strike from like an outsider perspective? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the writers and the actors, have, for one thing, the actors are in all likelihood going to join the writers on strike at the end of the month. Our contract is up uh, the last day of June, and mm. we've already voted to authorize our leadership to call a strike. And we are dealing with some issues that are unique to the writers. But one thing that is common is what I just alluded to, which is for people in my business, so much of the revenue stream is what is coming in in between gigs. I can't count on any given year whether or not I'm going to be on two shows, three shows, five shows, six shows, zero shows, you don't know. And that's true to a certain extent for writers as well. You may have a job on a show, that show ends, and you may not work again for months. What keeps professional writers and actors alive is a residual stream. And the residual stream used to be pretty robust. Mm. Money would come in from reruns on prime time. Money would come in from the syndication market. Money would come in from foreign errands. Much of what drove the residual market was the fact that wherever it was showing, it was advertisers supported. You'd watch something on television, you'd put up with the ads. We now, in this new model, there ain't ads. Mm. The money that producers, the money that distributors, the money that, that Netflix makes comes from subscribers and purchasers. 
but there's no advertising revenue. There isn't enough money coming in for them to continue to pay out residuals on as robust a level. Mm -hmm. So just that issue alone, the model is broken. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that anybody really candidly has a huge solution. My own solution as a leftist is to say you have to have caps. You have to have caps on how much network executives make, and probably you have to have some more stringent caps on what high-end talent makes. So you pour more money from the, you know, the money that comes in into the pool that everybody gets to enjoy. We unfortunately don't, we live in a cutthroat capitalist system. And, you know, nobody who's making $234 million as a studio executive is going to be too eager to say, hey, I'll make $10 million and I'll pour that money back into the business. Mm -hmm. But if you don't do that, you know, if you don't reallocate the resources, then you've got to think about where does the additional revenue come from? And if you're not prepared to change the subscription model, you're not going to, you know, where the, the app, you know, there's no advertising. And you're not going to be able to suddenly charge somebody like, you know, Netflix. Right now, it's like, what, 10 bucks, 12 bucks a month? Mm. Okay, it's 100 bucks a month. Yeah. Mm. Are you yeah. going to pay that? No. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. It's quite the situation. I don't foresee a conclusion. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the solution is. I don't know how they're going to resolve all this. Let me ask you this. Where do you, do you see this problem worsening? Like, would it be worsening? Yeah. No? Well, look at journalism. I mean, to me, you know, I think it's a nature of disruptive technology. Uh, newspapers are dying. And in part, it's because newspapers used to rely on advertising. If you go back, you know, 70 or 80 years, New York used to have like 12 daily newspapers and they were all thick. And it's because advertisers advertised in the newspaper, department stores and you name it, advertised in the newspaper. Who adver nobody advertises in the newspaper anymore. That was where their money came from. They can't charge 10 bucks to sell you a newspaper. Mm -hmm. So they have to let all their journalists go. And they let all their journalists go. And now the newspaper isn't even worth what, what they are charging for it. Mm -hmm. Journalism hasn't figured that out. You know, instead, the, those people who are interested in telling the stories, you know, they come together and they start some version of a, of a website, Slate, Salon, you, na you name it. They try and sell it as a subscription or they give it away for free, but they don't generate enough revenue to pay for journalists to actually go out and cover all the stories that need to be covered. True. Uh, this this is, you know, uh, I don't I don't know what the answer is. And then you throw in AI as well. Yeah. I mean, we're still having to deal with the reality of, of the Industrial Revolution. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, disruptive technologies disrupt for much longer than than we you know, we think of technology as only, and in many ways it is, you know, people don't die from, from the plague. People don't die from smallpox. People are living longer because people are living longer. We also have climate change. You know, it's as much a population issue as it is a technology issue. I I have no idea in within my business, what the answers are. Mm. My, 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 my impulse is to say, you have to resource share and you can't, you're not going to find another pot of gold to pay for this. You've got to actually have caps, mm. but, uh, but you know, it's not just the executives. I mean, I, you know, I, I read these interviews and I say this as somebody who, who, you know, I'm on the picket line, but when I read about writers and actors saying, you studio executive, you're making $234 million. You're so greedy. Turn some of it back. But I also say, yeah, but what about us? Yeah. You know, a an individual actor makes, you know, maybe $30 million from a movie, you know, it, it, what about, asking him to turn some of it back what about asking 
you know, Aaron Sorkin to turn some of his money back. If everybody turned who was rich turned money back, we would we would create a different ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I'm very political. Back in the day, America had a 90% tax bracket. People who made over $5 million, everything above $5 million was taxed at a 90% rate. That was, that's, you know. yeah, but that was at a time when it was not expected that somebody should make so much more than somebody else. So there weren't that many people making above $5 million a year. And there wasn't this sense of like, fuck it, I should be able to make as much as I possibly can. I've earned it. I keep it. This great disparity right now that I think is more or less a function of the way the modern world, the post-1960s world has moved, I think has put us in a position where it's difficult to look at ecosystem problems from a place of the culture as opposed to my own selfish interest. Mm. Yeah, And I'm not a Marxist. This isn't about a state-run solution. This is individual ecosystems recognizing that we all have to flourish. Mm. We all Climate change is a perfect illustration. Why can't we fix the world? Why are we going to drown or burn to death? Because people who have a lot of money don't really care enough about the ecosystem to make huge sacrifices. Mm. Yeah, well... <laughs> I love how this took a turn. Yeah, no, that that that's heavy for uh, nine thirty in the morning. But I love Sorry it. About that. You can ask me. <laughs> I'm perfectly prepared to be frivolous. I ask you. I love, you, it. Just I love it. You haven't asked me any frivolous questions. Fire well, away. Well, let's segue. Um, you are. You strike me as someone who is very full of life. You're very energetic. I called you spirited when we were corresponding by email, which you seem to love. And I've seen clips of you and um, Benita at conventions. You have this great dynamic. It seems like you have a, such a wonderful um, marriage as well. What 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 do you thrive on in life? What what fuels you outside of work and outside of um, politics? Book reading, reading books. Yeah, yeah. The thing, it's the thing I love the most. Yeah. Wanted to be a librarian when I was growing up. I was gonna ask that that I think sort of acting and psychology also go, might go hand in hand. Do you read a lot? But I, as as we can see, <laughs> so it's the thing. I, it's the thing I love the most. Mm. What is what is what are you reading? Like uh, right now, oddly enough, just because I just had it next to me, uh, Slow Horses, which is actually uh, the first in a series of books by a British writer named Mick Heron, who's kind of writing in the John le Carre vein. They did a, they're doing a series of these, uh, uh, they're doing this series on Apple TV with Gary Oldman. Yes, i have saying that, yeah. Um, that was quite good. Um, recently, I read the Elena Ferrante tetralogy uh, set in Naples about two young women who grow up, that traces their lives from eight to their 60s, set against a backdrop of contemporary Italy, that those were fabulous uh, hmm. Obama's memoir, A Promised Land, which was a wonderful look at his presidency. I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of fiction. Um, hmm. uh, I tend to read one book at a time. Sometimes I'll read it two or three times hmm. uh, if it's if it's dense, if it's challenging. And I'll kind of gravitate between, you know, more daunting books like reading a Faulkner novel or I read Proust a couple of years back and kind of made that my project. And then I'll swing over and read Agatha Christie. 
mm. or something that is escapist and fun. I, I, you know, I, it's like a diet. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't eat a salad every fucking day of my life, <laughs> but I couldn't eat a steak sandwich every day of my life either. Yeah. So, you know, I just kind of, I kind of, I kind of balance a balance. Yeah. yeah. Five best books you've ever read. Uh, uh, David Foster Wallace's, um, uh, what is the name of it? Um, uh, it's his classic big doorstop of a book and I'm going to space on the name. Um, any number of things by Faulkner, probably sound and the fury would Mm. be up there. Um, Mm, it's hard you know again it's sort of one i'm old so yeah. uh, not so when you've consumed so much just looking at your i'm assuming it's an office or a study but yeah you just yeah i have about i probably have about fifteen thousand books so this is one room Jeez. and my, i have a very patient wife it's a sickness i mean basically i could be a heroin addict i could be a drunk i could be yeah. a sex addict i could be a gambler <laughs> instead i am a, a pack rat who loves books <laughs> so I, I figure it's, it's possible I'll go, I'll go up in a ball of fire if they ever catch fire or I'll get buried alive if they ever tumble on me but <laughs> I'll take that risk it, it's very rare to find someone who has physical copies of books now because it's all on you know a kindle or something you know you know that it's interesting because when kindle came out everybody was saying oh my gosh it's the death of the book yeah and actually that has proven to not be true mm. um it is it is a perfectly wonderful and legitimate way to consume a book. A ditto books on tape. And I say let a hundred flowers bloom. It's the story that's important, not the mechanism by which you consume the story. That said, there are people who just love the, the object. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I do too. I, I like I want to live in a library. Yeah. When I was a kid, I used to skip school and go to the library. Yeah. And I'd call my say you know fuck school i'm at the library and mm-hmm. she would go oh john and then she would come and we'd spend the entire day together in the library she'd like wander around in the stacks i'd wander around in the stacks we'd get together what are you getting what are you getting what are you getting let's go out and keep looking yada 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 so i shared that with my that's how, why i became a reader because my parents were huge readers um there will always be people for whom having books being able to pick and look at books. Mm. There's, there's something it, about going to a library, which is... Yeah, it's it's called bibliophilia. Yeah. And bi- wow. bibliophilia is 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 as much t- as a, a tangible thing as it is an intellectual thing. And you don't get that from Kindle. Mm. No. I just love the smell of the paper. No, because you can't you can't go in and browse. There's, you can't browse <laughs> on Kindle. You exactly. Just, you can scroll, but that's not the same thing as going into a yeah. physical bookstore yeah. or library and actually having yeah. a browse. And I'll also say this is something that I don't know if this is true, but I've read this and I think it's very interesting. Because, particularly for the younger generation, they have grown up reading on screens. When we read on screens, we absorb about 70% of what we absorb when we actually read the printed page. Because mm-hmm. we are, in essence, taught to skim when we read on a screen. Yeah. It's the nature of scrolling. It's the nature of what we think it is to read on a screen. We're usually reading in a hurry. We're trying to absorb information mm-hmm. quickly. We're reading on the fly. We're reading, you know, in between, you know, like, oh, let me just see if I can catch that on the. And we instinctively and intuitively learn to do screen reading at a clip whereas book reading book reading is designed to slow your ass down yeah 
I'm a great believer. Nabokov is another favorite writer. I'd throw I'd throw um, a Lolita onto the list of top five books, um, or Pale Fire, or Speak Memory. Any number of things he's written, I love. Nabokov said the best reading is rereading, mm. and you know, he's essentially arguing that when you pick up a good book, it is about an act of immersion. Mm. It isn't it isn't an act of let me get the material quick. So there's a part of me that feels like reading on Kindle, I don't think this is true of everybody, believe me. I'm sure there are many people who who absorb a book on Kindle with as much fullness as they would absorb a printed page. For me, I don't think I would take a Kindle book on in exactly the same way I take a book book on. Mm. I would worry that I would I would be I would be reading at a faster pace than the book wants me to read. I think it's really important that a book teaches you how to read it. That's true. Mm -hmm. a, book, a book is, your gig with the book is like the same way you meet somebody at a bar. Mm. It, if you, you meet somebody at a bar and you, and you want to learn them, yeah. it's like, yeah. I, you know, I'm not gonna impose my will upon you. I'm here to learn you. And a book is there to be absorbed the way the book is asking you to absorb it. And that's usually slowly. Mm, wow. Did you ever play around with audiobooks? Nope. No? Nope. Never had an interest in that. Um, I, I have a lot of friends who record them and who are quite good at it. I want I want to make the voice myself, you know, mm. when I read a book. And I, I don't want to have somebody else's voice. And in terms of doing it myself, it's a very specific skill and a very interesting skill, but it's not a skill I ever was ever gravitated towards any more than I ever was wanting to be a voiceover artist, particularly. I, I'm expressive. Yeah. I, I need I need to feel like I've got the full range of expression available to me as an actor, you know. Well, there, there, there's something about reading reading a book. You're sort of I mean, you're creating this this world as well with the imagery described to you and it's sort of your own i guess interpretation is yeah, what... and, and like three pages you're reading at 17 different paces hmm. you're, you know one little passage it's like you slow and let the motherfucker down because it's like well yeah it, it yeah you'd have to and read then you hit the spot where it's like oh got it got it got it go go go, yeah. go. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. you know a book when it's being read to you it's being read at a single pace mm. oh that's true you know? it's your pace and, it's it's yeah. I, yeah it's their pace it's the it's their pace and i want to read a book at my pace yeah exactly yeah and i i would agree to that, I love that. <laughs> as as i was listening to this audiobook i um what you said there that slow down and then read it through it's being read to you at a faster pace but then i have to just go back so it's like holy shit i missed what what he wanted to say what the author wanted to say i think you're right and you can't stop it the same way you can yeah. in a book in a well, book it's like i know immediately when i missed something Mm -hmm. and it's right there and it's like flip. yeah and let me ask you this you talk about expressive you're an expressive person what are the other ways that you express yourself i mean i do a lot of volunteer work I, that's always been a really important part of my life um i i feel very privileged in my life you know i i have parents who loved me who inculcated in me a great love of reading i've been very fortunate in my friends i'm happily married i you know have my health uh, I, I have I have been very blessed. I'm not a believer. I'm an atheist. But you know, so that word I I use it I use it somewhat ironically. I, I, whatever it is, you know, it, there's a wonderful book called A Short History of Nearly Everything, which would be you know also on the list of like top hundred by Bill Bryson, who also wrote a great book about Australia in a sunburned country. 
um, which I highly recommend. I'm sure you know it. He starts his book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, which is a book about, you know, science for idiots. And he says, congratulations, it's a miracle you're here. When you think of all the things that had to go happen, going back to the Pleistocene era, you know, the butterfly wing that didn't didn't cause the hurricane and the forebears that met the forebears that met the forebears that met the forebears all the way down through the specific procreative act that led to you. It's a miracle you're here. Mm -hmm. So I have this deep sense of like, I'm the product of, of, of like, you know, fluke. And I have an obligation as a human alive in this world to be grateful and thankful and, and to give back. Mm. So my whole life, I have been involved in various social service organizations. And it has taken on more meaning for me the older I've gotten, in mm. part because I had the means to devote more time to it. And I had achieved enough in my career to feel, okay, I can reorient. Um, and in part because, you know, as much as I like what I do, I don't know that I necessarily feel that the 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 legacy of the work, mm. I suppose, lack of another word, means as maybe it means more to some people who watch. I don't know that it means as much to me. Yeah, as a legacy, I feel I can leave behind by helping to build strong social service organizations. You've got to feel like you're giving back before you leave this world, as well. Yeah. So, you know, the last seven years, I've been doing a lot of work with a great organization called the Hollywood Food Coalition here in Los Angeles, which um, has been around for 37 or so years. It helps provide hot, nourishing, multi-course meals to people in need every night of the week. But my wife and I, when we got involved, also really emphasized the nature of coalition building. We thought, you know, you're the food coalition. Let's use food as a mechanism by which to build bigger and better coalitions. Uh, coalitions of folks receiving food, coalitions of social service organizations distributing food, coalitions of groups coming together to figure out how to rescue food. Mm. So we've played a big role in helping to build our organization's capacity to rescue food. So we're now rescuing about two and a half million pounds of food a year, which we share with about 150 other social service organizations to augment and buttress their frequently nascent meal programs. Mm. Uh, that means a ton to me. I love the aspect of your life. It's um, you did the uh, telethon um, with Trek Geeks, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I donated yeah. to it. So yeah, I, I think it's such a worthy cause, and it's I don't know it's so, something about I don't know what we've lost in society where we've stopped sort of caring about. I don't think we've lost it. I really don't, and I think that's one of the reasons it matters to me. Is I I <laughs> think. I think there are people in this world, and unfortunately here in America, obviously Trumpism represents this this pernicious desire to tear us apart it, for mm. selfish reasons, you know? If people who have got a lot of money and a lot of power can get us all thinking we can't possibly get along, life is crap, just worry about yourself, fuck society, we're doomed, you know? If they can introduce that sense of nihilism, then people won't do the things that might actually take power and money away from the wealth to help distribute it more fairly to other people. Mm. I personally believe that most people have a very generous heart and people are looking to find ways to give back. And I, I think it's important to keep that spirit alive. If I find myself at a bar with somebody who wants to talk about politics and they're a Trumpist, I will say, you know what? I don't want to talk about your hatreds. I don't want to talk about your bigotries from my point of view. 
Let's talk about what you do to give back to the world. Can you tell me how you give back? Talk about your charitable efforts. Talk about the nature of what it is you think you're doing to make the world a better place. Let's focus our conversation on that. Mm. Because I think most people actually have a heart. Mm. They, they don't necessarily always have the a level of encouragement they That's need mm. to find what I kind of think of as their volunteeristic bliss. I use that phrase a lot. It means a lot to me. I think everybody's got uh, an impulse to do something, but they don't always quite know where to put it. You know, it takes time to figure out like, you know, what is it that I might do in the world to make the world a better place? Is it working with kids? Is it tutoring? Is it volunteering in a prison? Is it working for an ecological organization? Is it, is it, is it serving on a board or is it hands-on? I want to get in there and actually serve meals to people in need. You got to find that bliss and you got to start from a questioning point. What can I do? What do I want? What do I do? Don't put yourself like a square, you know, like a round peg into a square hole. Mm. Find, find the fit for you. But mm. I have a great I have a great deal of uh, of uh, respect for people's impulse. Mm. I think there are a lot of political forces in this world that try and squelch it yeah. out of a sense of their own perverse, dark self-preservation. Mm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, 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 this has been one of my sort of favorite episodes that we've done of this show. So, we'll we're very conscious of your time. So we will. No, be... you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. I'm not in any hurry. I mean, you know, oh, you can great. Keep, yeah, keep chatting. I just, I, I also, I have a a flip side and yeah. I have a serious side. No, so no, I, I love that. I, I love that about it. you. This means so, so uh, good. Just, yeah, there's a conversation. Sometimes it's like, oh, I'm in my serious mode. But no, if you want exactly. yes. silly questions, I'm perfectly capable of being flipped. Believe me. I think my wife would testify. That's what I like about me and Dan as well. That we also, I have a flip side that I like to get into serious philosophical conversations and mm. we talk about serious stuff. And I try my best to catch on to things because I'm, I realize that I'm 25 years old. And in order to need, in order to have an opinion about things, I need to know things first and then have an opinion. So, um, my thing has always been listening. So mm -hmm. as I was listening to this, I was like, I wanted to ask John that if you didn't know how old you were right now, how old do you think you would be? You know, as in all things, you are evaluating so many different things. My body would clearly tell <laughs> that I am old. My knees would say, don't think you're not old, motherfucker. You're old. <laughs> my left knee thinks I'm 83. My 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 uh my spirit yes. for spirit, spirit. Yeah. You know. But there too, your spirit is made up of so many things. Your spirit mm -hmm. is made up of an accumulation of life experience that changes you. I mean, you know, I it's I think the nature of growing old, you're trying to hang on to the best things about being young. Mm. You know. A sense of exuberance, a sense of kindness, a sense of, you know, curiosity, your sense of humor, you know, your whatever it is that, you know, one defines as youthful buoyancy or youthful, you know, self-expression. You don't want to lose that shit. Yeah. But, but experience cannot help but change you. You by the time you get your heart broken about a gajillion fucking times. Yeah. And yeah. figure out, you know, okay, uh, and oh, look, it mended again. Oh, okay, mm. that that is part of your spirit too, mm. you know. 
I mean, I, I'm I'm 63, and I, I I'm not Anthony Hopkins. I I can't look at my career and say that you know I I I not you know disappointment comes with the territory. Mm. Disappointment if you're an actor, some part of you is always going to be cognizant of I coulda, I shoulda, I mighta, I didn't, and you mm. got to live with that. You got to make your peace with that. Mm. You know. It, it not many people are Anthony Hopkins. If you're a writer, not many people become Philip Roth or Saul Bellow. Or, mm. or, you know, most human beings need to figure out a way to live. Richard Ford says this in, in a wonderful book, The Sports Writer. He says the secret of happiness is learning to recognize, I'm paraphrasing, recognize and live with regret, but to not let your life be defined by regret. Mm. And I, I think that is, you know, that sort of, so when you ask how old I am, I'm old enough to know that. <laughs> but I'm, I'm old enough to still believe in a good, well-placed fart joke. Mm, yeah. Well, well I, th I think at a certain point in time. Which that was. But... Yeah. <laughs> I, I think at a certain point in life, you have to realize that you're living your own journey and not trying to lives someone else's so you mentioned that you know anthony hopkins but you're john billingsley <laughs> you're not anthony anthony hopkins you're on your own path yeah you have to yeah. Sort of, yeah. it's more it's more to me that you know the nature of what gets you interested in something like be you know it could be anything an anthropologist astronaut whatever yeah is that there's some place when you're younger of of a, of an exploration that may take you mm life as it happens to you begins to make you go oh you know what for me to go ah uh, i would have to not maybe have a partner maybe have kids make this compromise make that compromise it's getting back to what we started talking about it's not necessarily having a fallback position but it is recognizing that the nature of life begins to hedge you in somewhat so that you know uh it, you, and you learn to live with it you know, I, I, I use Anthony Hopkins. You could use any any field yeah. and any, any great person within that field. Yeah, there is always a sense of, ah, that journey is possible. Mm. Yeah. That journey of exploration, that journey, if you're an actor of playing the great parts of, you know, I'm going to do Lear and I'm going to do Hamlet and I'm going to be on the stage and I'm going to be in the lead in movies and I'm going to, if you're a writer, it's like, I'm going to write 20 books and they're all going to be literary classics. Life shows you that, you know, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to make a nice living. I'm going to work with some fun people. I'm going to enjoy the experience, but I'm not going to be a big star. Yeah. John, on that, let me ask you this. Nietzsche said that every great man is an actor of his own ideal. Hmm. Did, you act, did you ever, not struggle, but did you ever had imposter syndrome? Um, I'm sure everybody does to a certain extent. I mean, there's a reason we always refer to the actor's nightmare, you know, that there's a Chris Durang play about the actor's nightmare, where, which is very funny. But I think every actor has that nightmare on some level. It's it's basically, I suppose, every human being has it within their own field. You you show up at, for the test and you're naked, or you didn't study the material. Or we all just have that innately. I mean, we're frail fucking human beings in a complicated world. We can't help but feel that we're inadequate to the demands that are placed upon us. It's part of the human experience. Mm -hmm. uh, so I I I think. I think the challenge of being human is to say all of it is real, 
all all experience is is brings up in you you know it's why you're an actor i know what it's like to to want to kill people i know what it's like to to have my heart broken i know what it's like to be lusty i know what it's like to feel like a fraud i know what it's like to feel like a failure i know what it's like to be dancing on the clouds all of it all of it all of it lives inside of me all of it lives inside of you you're an actor because you want to be able to feel like you can inhabit all of that safely mm. safety is the hard part safety is where you have um boundaries and where you have um some sense of inner resources that give you a sense of strength and solidity so that you can have the pain and not become the pain mm. have the pain and not become the pain mm. I like that when 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 people come up to you and you know i love you in this i love you in that what sort of validation does that um have for you it's even more validating when they're buying me a martini yeah <laughs> that's 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 like you know it's like oh that's really validated i feel very validated. yeah that, make it a double um my 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 own sense is i'm lucky in that um yes it's validating um it's also i feel fortunate in that when i got star trek for instance it was mm. certainly i was very well aware that mm. you know this is uh, a franchise that is beloved and that a lot of people are going to, you know, now consider me a big part of their life. Mm. For me, that was like, ah, great. I can I can walk into any bar in the world pretty much and say in a loud voice, back when I was on Star Trek and yeah. somebody will buy me a beer. Yes. I think that's great. <laughs> there are other people temperamentally who would not, you know, relish that. Yeah. Mm which has always struck me as sort of unfortunate to go into this business and to kind of be like, you know, guarded about it. But to me, it's like, huzzah. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you were Paul Newman or Denzel Washington, where mm -hmm. every time you stepped outside, it was like the paparazzi and, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, Mr. Newman, oh, Mr. Newman. I can see where it's like, you know, if you didn't have a sense of, of being able to mm -hmm. be private in the public sphere. Yeah. And maybe that's well, the, you know, great joy of getting to be, you know, what I am, which is kind of a vaguely recognizable character actor. I get yeah. enough of the validation, but I don't get swamped. Well, if you were a big movie star, constantly being, um, you know, followed by paparazzi, you would lose a sense of your identity as well. I, I think, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I've often wondered, it's like, I, I mean, I, I, there's a part of me that kind of feels like I look at like somebody like Tom Hanks. Mm. I think Tom Hanks has managed to maintain, you know, you never know. You never know exactly who somebody is until you know them. Oh, but one certainly comes away from, you know, just having a little bit of a finger on the pulse of popular culture with the sense that Tom Hanks has maintained a tremendous amount of accessibility Mm. availability sense of self-identity poise curiosity humor in spite of the fact that he may be you know one of the top three you know most celebrated and recognized actors in the world mm. so i don't think it's impossible mm. to live in the public sphere with joy yeah i do think that some of what you have to to be prepared to embrace is that you chose to be a big star mm. and with that comes an acceptance of this as part of the gig. If it's part of the gig, you might as well try and have a good time with it. 
I guess it's how you live with it, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what it would be like to have a bunch of paparazzi taking my picture. <laughs> I, I can only say that, you know, it's like, I don't think you're going to catch me doing anything I care about, you know, so go ahead. Take a yeah. Ta -da, Here you go. Oh, my God. He's too fat for that bikini. Ah! <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be worried about that too much. Yeah. Know? You'd probably just be thrilled someone's taking a picture of you. <laughs> no, I, mean, I just, I, I, you know, I, I, you get, I can see why the challenge is, of course. You know, I mean, I do a lot of podcasts. So even in this small world, I realize it's like I'm blah, 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 and out in the world. And, you know, theoretically, yeah. somebody at some point in time is going to say, I can't believe you said that thing about, you know, the whales. <laughs> <laughs> you know one is always at risk of being of speaking mm. so if you're a celebrity and you're really a celebrity i can understand why you might slowly begin to shut down the impulse to speak mm. yeah I like obama who i adore uh, the one thing about obama is you can always see him when he speaks it's like mm. and then because he can't fuck up so he has to take this long thinking pause before he commits to any words. Mm. That I would find somewhat exhausting. Yeah. I do think on that level, you know, being a truly public figure where you, the expectation is you're going to have an opinion about everything and you're going to talk about everything and you're going to be asked to talk about everything would be challenging. Mm. Because I don't think I could ever be a person who parses his words that well. Mm. It's um, so I've I'm actually quite proud of myself that this hasn't just been a Star Trek podcast because I, I haven't have a single I haven't Star Trek question. I, I know, haven't, like... no, I haven't disclosed this yet, but I'm a massive Star Trek fan, and Harmon here has never seen it, which I sort of love that dynamic. Oh, fabulous! Because this is more of a podcast about people's lives and how they live, and a bit about their careers as well, but. I, we had Nana visitor on this time last oh, week. Oh, I love Nana, Mama yeah. Nana. And um, I, I asked her how you would sell Star Trek to someone who hasn't seen it. So how would you sell Star Trek to Harmon here? Well, like all things, like all things, there's good and there's bad. Mm. Star Trek has been around since 1966. So you would have a lot of, it's like, an ice cream shop. You would have a lot of varieties of ice cream to choose from. What binds, I think, all of these varieties of Star Trek is a fundamental concern with ethics and morality. And I think if you're interested in ethics, if you're an ethicist, I think Star Trek has a lot of very interesting stories to tell about what it means to be ethical in the world. So setting the sci-fi trappings aside and the boom, boom, space laser and the girls in the miniskirts, putting all the trappings aside, I think Star Trek at its best is an exploration of what it means to be ethical in the world, which I think is interesting if you're, you know, and, and it seems as if you are, Arna, ethically and philosophically inclined. Mm, I love that. But I may or may not be a Star Trek fan, but movie Man from Earth made a huge impact on me. I don't know why. I just, someday I was, I think I saw that movie a couple of years ago. I was sitting. Uh, Jerome it. Bixby, by the way, who wrote it, wrote for Star Trek. Yes. Yeah. 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 And that, it's something about that movie that, I don't know, that I've watched that movie so many times. 
I just want to know your thoughts on that movie. What do you think of that movie? I just... Um, well, you know, I'd separate them out because um, my my thoughts as to how well it was realized, you know, there's always that part of you that's involved in a project that says, oh, I wish we had a little more money. I wish we had a little more time. Mm -hmm. I can't believe we tried to shoot that in seven days. And, you know, we didn't get enough takes. And uh, uh. so the product itself, I, I might have more mixed feelings about. Mm -hmm. You know, also, I think, you know, there are aspects of it because it was written actually back in the 60s and um, he kind of put it aside. And it was his son, Emerson, who introduced it to the person who eventually directed it and produced it. They understandably didn't feel like they wanted to revise it. They wanted it to be their father's script, but their father wrote it in the 60s. So it has a kind of a an aspects of it. it has have a kind of a fusty cornball quality. As the character who had to deliver a lot of the jokes, I might have been a little more cognizant of that. Mm. Like, can I contemporize this a little bit more? Because it feels like it's an artifact. But the story is about the difference between spirituality and religiosity. Yes. And I like the story. I, and I think it's an important story mm. to tell. The distinction between what it is to have a spiritual or ethical outlook and the trap of dogma and religion. Well, mm. yeah. Oh, man. Um, just before we wrap this up, yeah. one last question. Absolutely. What was Boxers. Your... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, briefs. No, nothing. Tidy whities <laughs> well, Amanda. Before you do that, we Nana left you a, a oh, question yeah. from last oh, yeah. from last week. So Nana we, left me a question. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, um, we told her that you'd be on the podcast this time, yeah. this week, and um, she asked you, "What did you have for dinner last night?" Uh, we had uh, uh, fajitas. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We had uh, had a little, uh, steak and tortillas and tomato and onion sauce and lettuce. Mm -hmm. That was uh, what she asked me. She didn't ask me like eight separate <laughs> questions. Nothing too deep. I was expecting a deep question. I was like, okay, cool. I'll just, we'll that, just... that was another deep <laughs> conversation that we had with Anar as well. Okay. It was great. Yeah. Go on. I wanted to ask you, like, what was your motivation to do this podcast? I always say yes to podcasts. I, I I've never turned down a podcast ever. Um, one, why would I? I mean, you know, I, I, A, um, I'm very appreciative of the fact that I got to have a career and a house and a bank account and a nice life. And, I, and I, you know, it's because people like my work. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't I want to, you know, like if somebody wants to chinwag with me, why would I say no? Yeah. Two, I also, you gave me an opportunity to talk about the Hollywood Food Coalition which I'm going to plug one more. Yeah, do it time. again. Do it as many Please. times as you want. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, go to ho, H-O, fo, F-O, co, C-O, dot org. Ho, fo, co, dot org. You can learn about what we do if you care to make a contribution. Huzzah. If mm -hmm. you're in Los Angeles and you want to volunteer, or if you're passing through Los Angeles and you want to get an interesting insight into how LA works, the kind of thing that maybe as a lotterista, you're not going to otherwise understand. Mm. You could always sign up and volunteer. Mm. And we are doing Trek Talks again next yes. January, which will be, for those of you who aren't familiar, 
a five to six hour long Jerry Lewis-esque telethon in which a whole panoply of Star Trek folks, actors, directors, producers, behind the scenes talent, makeup artists, technicians, chinwag about the experience of Star Trek. So if you're a Star Trek fan, come and listen. Doesn't cost anything to listen, but we'll ask you to make a contribution to the Hollywood Food Coalition. Last year we made $110,000. Yeah. I'm hoping we can keep adding on to that as as years continue. Just so on that's, the other reason, that's the other reason I do your pod, do, do yeah. the podcast. Just on that, I just love how that, that that's sort of taken off as well. And now that's a a recurring theme because I believe that would be the third one, right? That that you... it's the third one. And something else that I would love to talk about, which you're giving me some some opportunity to do. Yeah, go for it. Is, yeah. is that one of the things? One of the panels every year we call tractivism. And getting back to an earlier part of the conversation, I think one of the things that really animates me is that there's so many people in the track universe, especially, who are very excited and animated by the Roddenberry vision of a, a universe in which we get along, in which we give back, in which we cooperate, in which we explore together. So we want to continue to create opportunities for fans and folks associated with Star Trek to tell their stories about how they're doing that. And we're calling that kind of effort attractivism centric effort and we hope to have our own podcast mm. hopefully hopefully mm. on uh the roddenberry network oh I heard, I, heard, I heard that comes to be i hope, I hope so too i hope yeah. so too so you know well i i would be i'd regret it forever without asking this but what one episode of enterprise would you point to as being one that sort of displays the ethics of a better future similitude yeah uh, i think was an episode i don't know if that is um i anticipated your question i don't know if that is a an episode that um it displays as you put it uh, the better future but i think it's what star trek does best mm. it explored an ethical question rooted in contemporary technology and science and tech and 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 braced us with an exploration of what the values are that we have to examine as we make some of these decisions. This was about cloning. Mm -hmm. And it was about whether or not, as we we have this capacity to clone, whether or not, you know, what should be the things we, we take into account? You know, is it okay in this instance, because the story demanded we clone one of the if you don't you don't watch the show so well there's a character called trip whether mm -hmm. we should clone trip in a crisis we need another iteration of trip we clone him knowing that he will have a very short life and that as it turns out we actually had to take his life what are the ethical decisions that attach the the episode was strong because it involved everybody in the cast there was a sense of of, of real tension you know, sometimes Star Trek can get a little kind of into the thicket where an episode doesn't have enough, like, you know, juice mm. to support ethical examination. This show, that episode, I think, did that. But at its heart, it asks questions about we can do something. Mm. Should we do something? When shouldn't we do something? Who gets to make that decision? How does that work? That's when I think Star Trek functions well. You frame my question in a, in a better way. So thank you for that. <laughs> I'm a good framer. I'm a good framer. I'm a good framer. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I'll go the whole day and all I'll do is, Bonnie, I want to frame something for you. I want to frame something for you. And then I'll let her fill it in. Uh, you know, that's like she does 90% of the work. I, I just have to say, I just, with all this sort of uh, new trek out there, I, ho I hope that we see you again in some 
capacity, be it flocks or well, Dr. Flox is presumably still alive. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think Strange New World could always, you know, use me. Mm. And then I've got my own version, uh, uh, which I've pitched, which no one is interested in, called <laughs> Old Fat Flocks, where each episode begins with old fat flocks sitting on like a rocking chair going, oh, back when I was an intergalactic space doctor, I had all sorts of adventures. And then you'd have the flashback music, you know. And in flashback, a bunch of young people would run around in their underwear and act out those adventures. Then it would come back to me. Oh, stay tuned next week for another episode of Old Fat Flocks. And I'd get paid. I'd only have to work a half a day. I wouldn't have to get out of my fucking chair. <laughs> you could record it there. I could record it there. I know. <laughs> I, I'm not even in a rocking chair. I'm just rocking because I'm an actor. You wouldn't, even you, even have have the you wouldn't even have to put the makeup, makeup on these days. They could just do it, you know, with digital yeah. Do it digitally. <laughs> or you could say I've been horribly scarred in an accident and I didn't want to reveal my face. Any number. Of... Anyway, <laughs> nobody's interested in this. I, I've like, anybody I ever meet, I tell this to and I can see their eyes kind of glaze over. It's like, are you fucking insane? Like, oh, you you, you people don't watch Petticoat Junction anymore. Do you know Petticoat Junction? No, no. no. Uh huh. <laughs> There's a little hotel called the Shady Rest at the Junction, Petticoat Junction. This was a show in America back in the '60s. Basically, it was a a woman who ran a small hotel with her three nubile daughters and Uncle Joe, played by the great character actor Edgar Buchanan, who basically kind of sat in his rocking chair and. You know, he had his braces, his, his suspenders, and he he was a character. Like that's that's you know, that's all I that's all I want at this stage in my career is I want the same parts that Edgar Buchanan had. Mm. Or oh. Walter Brennan. You know who Walter Brennan is? No, we're way too young, John. Come on. You're way too young. Well, you know what? This is part of my education. You're Walter Brennan. Still seven. Edgar Buchanan. Andy Devine. Eugene Palette. How about Eugene Pallette? You know who Eugene Pallette is? <laughs> no, sir. Have you yeah. ever seen The Lady Eve? We're going to look it up, though. As soon okay, as I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to give you an assignment. Okay. Go on. Okay. I want you to go and watch as many of the movies of Preston Sturges, S-T-U-R-G-E-S, as you can, particularly The Lady Eve with Henry Fonda, Barbara Stanwyck, and the great Eugene Pallette. But going on from there to the great McGinty, to, oh, he had a number of them, the Palm Beach story, uh, Sullivan's Travels, oh. one of the great directors and one of the great comic directors and a wonderful, wonderful, he, he used character actors like nobody's fucking business. Mm. Cool. Do, do you have any more questions? No, what I get you're the only person who's ever brought Nietzsche up in, a, in an interview, by the way. No, this is uh, great. I love this. I you're love a, you're wearing yeah. a Dodgers hat. I he's, appreciate that. He's deep and philosophical. I'm trying my best to uh to learn about life. Well, I, as I said, I'm 25, John. Um, well, but you're if I mush you together, you're like almost a, a 60 year old, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. got the soul of a 60 year old for sure. I do, yeah, I do. I started, and I mean, the two of you together, how, 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 how old are you? You're 25, how old are you? I'm 32. 32 there you go that's like like you're so 30 if you're 57 yeah yes sir a combined age yeah <laughs> i know i'm wishing together you're 57 you're you're a little bit younger than i am mm. um so how come you don't know who eugene palette is you're 57 years old you don't know who eugene palette is i know it's it's going to be homework for us for sure um <laughs> right. 
if if Harman doesn't have any uh, questions, you do. I'll yeah. go on because I I have a, another question as well that you ask yours first. I wanted to see if, if you met twenty five year old self, what would you say to him? Uh, <laughs> uh fasten your seatbelt is going to be a bumpy ride. Do you know where that quote is from? What's that? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going oh, to be yeah, a lovely yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what that quote is from? No, no. Where is that? Fasten quote your seatbelt. That's oh, oh, that's all the must have. Yes, oh, fast, fast, fast and, and furious, furious, right? <laughs> oh no! All about Eve. Betty Davis, one oh, of the most. I know that name. Fasten your seatbelts. In seat cinema belt. history, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. It's from yeah. all the flights I've that. ever taken. I love that. I'm just yeah. Okay. Uh, what what do you love about Benita, your wife? Oh God, Benita, are you in hearing distance? Okay. <laughs> um, so many things. I don't know where to begin. She's the she's the kindest and most compassionate person I've ever known. Mm. Um, she she she's. We were walking home one night, and a stray dog came bounding by, and without thinking, she just like started chasing it. Like you know, it was gone for like twenty minutes, and she finally came back because I couldn't catch it. It's like, well, what were you gonna do with it if you didn't catch it? I don't know. <laughs> I'd have rescued it. Yeah, that's her. That's her impulse, and it, it is. It is a remarkable thing. At the same time, she's also, uh, she's so funny, and she is so um, uh, playful, mm. and you know, I mean, I just am very. I, I couldn't, you know, I, I I couldn't begin to sing her praises highly enough. She's, she's an incredible, incredible person, and I'm mm. very. Again, that's sort of why you know. Uh, this uh, the impulse to to try and give back is really rooted in a sense of like I mean I just have been so lucky my life mm. is I've been so fucking lucky mm. you know um, being married to Bonnie is like you know I mean yeah yeah uh, I love that I love that it's it's a good place to end as as well and I just want to say again I mean thank you so much for doing this and. Uh, the Hollywood Food Coalition. Everyone, go and please check donate. that out because it's a great cause. The Hollywood Food Coalition. Ofoco.org. And oh, by the way, actually, you can watch Trek Talks if you haven't seen it. You can yes. go to trekgeeks trekgeeks and you can watch uh, last couple of years wonderful interviews with Scott Bakula. I mean, anybody you can you can possibly think of, we've interviewed him. Oh, I love I love that you got. Um, Scott Bakular in that last one as well. We got Scott, we got the actor, we got Anson Mount, we've yeah. got, we've had, you know, we've had people from, you know, I mean, we've had directors, we've had showrunners, we've had Brandon Braga, we've had all sorts of folks hmm. um, and wonderful technicians. It's on YouTube. So feel free, watch. You'll also learn a lot more about the Hollywood Food Coalition interspersed in that six or seven or six hours of, 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 of entertainment. There are little videos showing what we do. Um, and and maybe they'll spur you to make a donation, mm. but you know that's between you and your God. <laughs> you and your God. I I thought this would be um, a sort of funny little uh, tag for the end of the episode, but I was looking through your IMDb uh, okay. this morning and looking at your upcoming projects, and you're in uh, I think it's a movie called Boy Makes Girl, and you're playing a character called Chunky. Did you have to? Did you have to uh, try and find your character for that one? Uh, it's so funny that that one comes up because yes, that was a movie that was made some years back, 
and it, he finally got it put together. It took him forever. You know, when you make it, yeah. when you make a movie and you have no money, it's like eight dollars. You have, you know, it takes you forever because you can't take it into post until you raise another eight dollars. Mm. You can't get, you know, you can't begin to distribute it until you've got enough money to send prints out. Another eight dollars. He finally is getting it out in the world. It's, he's a wonderful actor, and he wrote it himself. It's a story about a guy who builds a robot girlfriend for himself. And I play, yes, a guy named Chunky, <laughs> although that's not really Jermaine. Yeah. Who runs a private card room, who's kind of, you know, one of the, no pun intended, heavies. In the <laughs> and I did it because, you know, even though there was no money, yeah. because I got to work with Paul Dooley. Do you know who Paul Dooley is? Oh, was? yeah, of course I do, yeah. Big Star Trek guy as well. He was in Star Trek. He's been in a bunch of things, yeah. And oh. name one other thing he was in, other than Star Trek. Oh, um, God, uh, you're going to hate me, but he was in Desperate Housewives. <laughs> name a movie. Movie? Oh, God, no, I can't name a movie, actually. I can't, not off the top of my head. I'd have to actually look up his IMDb, but I'm sure I have seen him in movies as well, because I've seen Check him out on TV. Breaking, breaking Away. Yeah, Breaking Away. Okay. Wonderful movie he made in the 70s about uh, a bicycle race in Indiana. Yeah. Hmm. I love it. Are you giving us some great homework to to look into later on? But thank thank you so much. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for My your pleasure. time. And that yeah, th thank you for being part of this show, John. You're a legend. Thank you so much. Thank love you. you. And I hope you have a beautiful day. Say hi to Bonita as well from our side. I will indeed. We're going to go off to Bloomsday. Uh, you know what Bloomsday is? No. Yeah. What, no. What is it? Every day. Uh, every year on this day, on the uh, 16th, uh, it's a celebration of uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. Right. And, and uh, read excerpts from Ulysses and listen to Irish music and uh, drink doubtless a lot of beer. Mm -hmm. what I'm going to do. Have a good time. Have a good time, John. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Coach to Australia. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank All you right. so much.